let me just make a little ad here. Yeah, please. Hi, this is Jason Calacanis for Acquired.fm. Is that the domain name? Acquired.fm? That is it. Yeah. All right, listen. You're listening to this. You're either a founder, an aspiring founder, an investor, or an aspiring investor. For $100 a year, you're going to get hours of content that's not available to everybody else. That's also known as an edge. You are in a competition with other investors. You're in a competition with other founders. You need an edge. If I could tell you, you get one, two, three good insights a year, even one, would you pay $100 for an amazing insight that gave you an edge against your competitors? Of course you would. You pay $10,000. So why wouldn't you pay $100? Because it's content, you're thinking about it the wrong way. The LP program at Acquired.fm is not, it's not content. It's an edge. And it's an underpriced edge. So buy it for 100 now before they raise the price to what it should be which is 5,000 a year. This is Jason Calacanis for Acquired.fm. See you in the Slack. How's that for an ad, huh? You can have that. Mike, can you, can you can have actually it. take your mic You can literally stand. have my ad. You can have my ad. I swear we did not ask him to do that, everyone. No, I just yeah. love, I love doing ads. Thank you. Welcome to this special episode of Acquired, the podcast about great technology companies and the stories behind them. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Acquired is all about stories. Ordinarily, we tell the story of a great technology company or a great leader or a great adaptation. Today, we are telling the story of someone who doesn't just have one story. He has a whole anthology across all of those categories. The one and only Jason Calacanis. Uh, so just to give our audience a small sampling of all of the enterprises that Jason has started and is involved with across his career. Yeah, David, I bet you can't uh, do this all in one breath. Uh, no, no. <laughs> Jason has founded four companies by our account, uh, Silicon Alley Reporter, Weblogs, Mahalo, and Inside.com. Do we miss any? No, those are them. Those are the four. Are the and Inside.com is the same cap table. It's just the pivot of Mahalo. So arguably ah. one. Did not yeah, know people that. don't know that. We'll yeah. get into that. Three conferences, three podcasts, Angel, All In, and of course, This Week in Startups, which is now over a thousand episodes. The YouTube channel around all of those. You were the first Sequoia Scout. You were literally the prototype of the Sequoia Scout. Correct. And, the, and still the greatest returner. And still the greatest returner. But who's counting? <laughs> it's not a competition, <laughs> maybe, but I won. Maybe some time uh, might have something to do with it. Well, Anyway, we'll get into that. You've made over 200 angel investments in your career. You're a blogger. You're an author. You have a newsletter. You started the Launch Accelerator, the venture fund around that, the syndicate around that. You are the self-professed. We have you on record as saying you are the either third or fourth best angel investor of all time. For sure. We'll yeah. Get into that. For sure, Mount Rushmore. <laughs> Chris Saka, Ron Conway, obviously ahead of me. And then there's a bunch of people we nobody knows who did incredible angel investments you know, in Google and Apple, but they don't have like, um, the, they don't feel the necessity to put it on the cover of a book like I did. <laughs> Speaking of, quote that we want to wrap this up with from your book, most folks think I'm lucky. Some say I'm a complete fraud and a handful think I'm a brilliant hype man. I don't agree with any of them. I agree with all of them. Jason Calacanis, welcome to the show. Uh, big fan of the show. Thanks for having me on. And, and David, thank you for doing that intro because your voice is so much better than Ben's. I mean, that is a radio <laughs> voice you have, David. I, it's so soothing. And Ben and I are just like, 
scratchy records. But Ben's got good insights, so I'm glad to be here. I'm a big fan of your podcast. Got to have something to rely on, Jason. Exactly, the insights. <laughs> Thanks for joining. So, okay, today, probably most people listen to, subscribe to Jason on one of these many channels we've talked about. Today, we're going to talk about two sort of less discussed parts of Jason's story. One on the main show here is how Jason has built his whole empire across all these properties and how it all ties together uh, in his mind. And then two, right after this on the LP show, we're going to talk about what the bigger picture is behind said empire, what Jason's secret master plan is, a la his friend Elon, and why it might represent a wholesale deconstruction of the entire startup ecosystem. So you can click the link in the show notes or go to glow.fm slash acquired. I'm a member. I pay a hundred bucks a year or something. Well, thank you. We appreciate, we appreciate it. it. It's worth it. The LP show is like the best parts. It's like you cut the nice, like the ribeye and that's like the best part. <laughs> it's like the New York strip of the podcast. It's great. Well, we hope that the whole podcast is good, but we, uh, yeah, we but it's good. The, the LP uh, stuff the is sentiment. the tightest, I have to say. You guys put the most work into that and people just pay for it. You want good content to exist, pay for it. If only all of our guests were like you, Jason. All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the visa numbers, I just pulled up my visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's, what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and Friends of the Show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse-native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. So Jason, you've talked a lot about growing up your childhood. So we'll 
do that briefly here. You're born in New York, right? Um, Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Yeah. You, you know, when you come from New York, you don't say New York. You, you say, not only do you say the borough, you say the part of the borough. So I'm from Bay Ridge, which is literally the last stop on the train. On the train. Love it. Tell us a little bit about your family and what growing up was like for you. Yeah, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. Uh, which was a fantastically interesting time to grow up as a young person. We were free-range kids to the extreme. Uh, and Brooklyn and you know was not hipsters back then. It was you know working class and connected guys and the Hell's Angels and cops and bookies and it was it was a little bit more rough and tumble. My dad owned a bar. He was essentially the mayor of Bay Ridge in a way. Like people loved my dad, John the Beard, and they loved his bar. And I worked at his bar, my brother, my two brothers and I, my older brother, my younger brother, Jamie and Josh, from a very young age. My mom was a nurse and she ran the emergency room in Brooklyn at Victory Memorial Hospital and then later ran the ICU. She's a nurse practitioner and she's got, I think, three graduate degrees. So I had this amazing, hardworking mother doing three or four jobs, had this amazingly hardworking dad. And it was a blue collar lifestyle. We were, you know, we owned our house, but barely. Um, we were always living month to month. But there was a lot of love and a lot of craziness. Uh, growing up in a bar, I literally grew up in a bar and made espresso for mob bosses, made baked clams for Tony Bennett, uh, would go get cigarettes for the Coke dealer, would put Bally's, in cappuccinos for police officers in uniform coming in at two or three o'clock to have a steak or burger because my dad would let them come in at any time. It sounds like not just a bar. This is more like a pub. It was a pub. Exactly. It was kind of like a pub. Uh, and the cops would come in anytime they wanted, but usually they come in between lunch and dinner. And uh, my instructions were just give them whatever they want and just charge them 10 bucks each. And they would proceed to drink four or five Irish coffees each. Did they order them as Irish coffees or? Yeah, no, there was the like wink and then it was the wink. You know, yeah. they, they, they were in uniform, so they just wanted to have a cup of coffee. Hey, kid, get me a cup of coffee. And whenever I got the bookie, Artie Maresca, uh, or the, uh, the guy who dealt uh, cocaine, uh, his pack of cigarettes or whatever, they would just say, here's 20. Or here's a 50 sometimes, or sometimes even a 100. Go give me a pack. Give me two packs of Marlboro Lights. I go out, I get two packs of Marlboro Lights. It was $2 or $1.50 a pack, and they say, keep the change. This is like the Brooklyn version of uh, Bob Iger's story with um, with the chairman, Frank Sinatra, going out and getting him mouthwash. Exactly, right? exactly. And uh, so, you know, I, I basically got exposed to commerce at a very young age, and I became very interested in power and money, perhaps too interested in it. My first real job was a guy owed my dad like two grand he had lost playing backgammon to him. My dad used to have a backgammon in a poker game. When the bar closed at four, the fun began. From four till seven or eight in the morning, they had after hours, uh, which was mainly cops and hell's angels and mafia guys and you know hippies. All playing together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would come and I would do the porter work at 7 a.m. So I would come and sweep up the place on Saturday and Sundays when I was 10, 11 years old uh, with my grandfather, rest in peace. And we were the porters, fancy way of saying janitors. And um, my dad would be there playing cards or whatever. Anyway, this guy got, he was in for two grand, too large to my dad. And uh, he couldn't pay. And he needed a little time. So my dad was like, that's fine. He said, here, I know the kid likes the Star Wars. Here's the Empire Strikes Back. And Empire Strikes Back was in the theaters. And he handed my dad a VHS tape. And my dad had gotten a VHS player that had fallen off a truck 
this is before Blockbuster, obviously. This is like 1984 or something. I don't know, 85? No, 83, 84, something like that. They were just starting to have video rental stores, but something like Star Wars would never be allowed there. It would maybe come five years later. Anyway, long story short, I was like, this is incredible. I have Empire Strikes Back. And I had my friend bring his VHS over and I made copies of it. And my first job was Jason's Hot Tapes. I would make copies of The Empire Strikes Back and sell them for 20 bucks. That's even, I thought you were going to say you started running screenings. No, that would be a better idea, actually. But anyway. It was before Jason learned about marginal costs. Exactly. I was like, wait a second. How much does a VHS tape cost? My math teacher uh, says, hey, Calcanus, stay after. I'm like, oh, God, I'm going to get pinched. And so he says, I, I know you're selling this uh, tape. I said, yeah. Because you, you think that's an okay thing to do? And it's like, no, I probably shouldn't be doing it. He's like, do you have these tapes with you? And I said, yeah. He goes, how much are they? I said, they're 20 bucks. He said, uh, okay, I'll take one. And I said, here, it's on the house. I gave him the tape. <laughs> <laughs> so it was literally, I mean, when I saved my life, when I was watching Goodfellas. I was using this um, Chrome extension called Scener that we invested in to watch uh, Goodfellas with some fans of the show and I just tweeted and it's like group viewing, you know, like there's Netflix party and this is Scener. So now that everybody's home, you can watch Netflix with your family, whatever. So I put on Goodfellas and I was just watching this kid growing up and I was just having flashbacks. I mean, literally my life was like the first act of Goodfellas. Well, Jason, I'm going to deviate from our little outline here a little bit, but like, I know you're a prolific poker player. Like, uh, I don't know if semi-pro is the right word, but you play with pros, you're friends with pros. Um, yeah. A lot of your investing patterns sort of match poker patterns informed uh, by yep yeah so did that start here did, 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 when was your early I, it poker didn't game? i was exposed to gambling at a very young age i didn't participate in it my exposure to poker came when i was in new york a friend of mine odeo Ressi, who started the founders institute just started a 20 30 poker game and myself scott heiferman from meetup.com uh, nick denton had come to a couple of games uh jeff dodge is from razorfish and now one drop which i'm an investor in just a bunch of like the Silicon Alley folks would play cards and I'd play cards with them. And nobody, it was like one of those card games where people said, what's better, a straight or a flush? And somebody had to like look it up kind of thing. Yeah. You have the little card next to you on the table where you're sort of referencing it. Yeah, literally. That was like that. It was just an excuse. And we used to play down at a place called Forlini's, which is still down in Chinatown, which is like a, an Italian restaurant. I'll leave it at that. And we used to play in the back. But then I went, when I moved to LA and I spent a decade in LA, a lot of my friends like Sky Dayton, uh, was playing cards, and uh, my friend Kevin Pollock, who I was friends with the actor, he was playing cards. And we just, you know, those games were $200 buy-in or $500 buy-in, so you had to be a little more serious about it. And then I, you know, the stakes started going up. I tried to study the game. I was terrible at it. And then I started getting invited to this game. This woman, Molly, kept inviting me, and she'd be like, oh, Toby really wants you to come to the Four Seasons, and uh, Leo really wants to see you. And I was like, Toby and Leo want to see me lose... 20 grand. Like, they don't want to see Jason Galgadis. Uh, so I never went to Molly's game, but she invited me frequently because I was a fish or a whale, as we say in the business. But yeah, it, that's when I got exposed to it. And then one of the, in the early D conferences, uh, myself, Bill Gurley, Mark Pincus, and um, Sky Dayton were all there. And we said, hey, you guys want to play cards? And we went up to, I think it was Mark Pincus's room and we just took the folding table and we started playing cards. And then we started hosting this game at the D conference, which later became Recode. It became very famous, this poker game. And then we have a weekly poker game that everybody knows about here in Silicon Valley. You know, it's just my best friends and Phil Hellmuth and Draymond from the Warriors. Um, 
Chamath, obviously, and David Sachs. Um, just a really good group of guys uh, who get together. And uh, we've been playing virtually now, which is kind of fun. And now you have a podcast around it. <laughs> well, Chamath was just like, Chamath was one of these guests on my podcast who you know, he just burned the building down. And he nobody really knew who Chamath was <laughs> until he came on my podcast. And, um, you know, we started having him at the events. And then CNBC got their hooks into him. And now he's just like throwing bombs for a living. Well, I'm and, sure he gets like <laughs> just incredible page views whenever he goes on CNBC it's, and tries uh, yeah, traffic. Yeah, it's just a problem for me though because he's like, <laughs> "Let me come on your podcast and just say everybody's a fraud in venture capital." I'm like, I, "I know you made your money and you're retired and running a family office now, Chamath, but I, I'm raising funds right now. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't really help me to have you on the podcast saying that this is a giant Ponzi scheme." And he's like literally pouring gasoline over himself, lighting himself on fire. And I got to like step six feet back <laughs> to burn okay, the so building this is, down. This is great. Because yeah. this is the perfect segue into the media business. Yeah. So when so you go to Fordham. Yeah. After Fordham, was it right after Fordham? At night. You start as a, at night. You start as a reporter. How, so what draws you into the media business? Because to my mind, this is the, this is the, well, obviously you're growing up years and everything, you know, that shaped you then. But starting in the media business is the wedge that brings us all to the Calacanis empire now. Yeah. So this is a very interesting thing. What happened was, you know, I, I would go into Manhattan. I was just in awe of the people in Manhattan and people who were rich or famous and who were powerful because I had no power growing up and I was in a very dangerous situation and I was watching people who were powerful and I was like, okay. The book is very powerful. The head of the Hell's Angels is very powerful. <laughs> this cop is very powerful. I am not powerful. My dad is powerful. He's got all these people in his bar. Like, and I was watching money go around, and I was just fascinated by these topics, probably too much. And I saw magazines, and magazines are how information was really transferred in the you know 80s and 90s. And so I just started subscribing to every possible magazine. In the 80s, I got all the PC magazines and Bytes and all that kind of stuff. And then I started, you know, this Esquire, this paper magazine, Time Out New York. So you were kind Rolling of a geek even back then. Like, you, yes. you, it wasn't just that you were like, you know, reading Esquire or like the source or whatever. Like you were, you were no. reading the tech blogs. I was reading all the tech stuff and I, I was really into technology. I had a PC Junior uh, computer that my dad had bought me with cash from the restaurant or Parker game. I was doing a little phone freaking, which is like getting phone codes. Yeah. Anyway, you, I was involved in a Wozniak. bunch of scams. Yeah. Well, the, the phone freaking thing was kind of scary because you, the way Sprint worked in the early days is you just dialed an 800 number and then it asked you to put in like a five or six digit number and then you either got a dial tone or it went. Eh, 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 eh. It doesn't take a genius to figure out if you put up a war dialer, which is just a random dialer on your modem that dialed all these different random numbers in the morning, you'd have two or three codes. So then you start using somebody's code until it got turned off. And so we were doing all kinds of scams and stealing floppy disks and selling chess master. Anyway, I got out of all that and I just went into IT. And so I worked in the computer lab at Fordham. I was making two fifty an hour, which was the minimum wage in 1987, I think. Then I went to three fifty. Then I got fired from that job because I had partitioned a hard drive and created a hidden hard drive where I put a bunch of video games and I was selling <laughs> video games and working. So you're perfect. entrepreneurial. <laughs> well, yeah, I was I was I was a I was a criminal. Um, I was selling WordPerfect out of the Fordham computer lab, and I got busted. And I then I started selling SPSSX or whatever that's called, like the ten disc, like four hundred dollar statistics package. And this, oh, this yeah, is like yeah. 
yeah, this is like a really bad idea because now so I'm 17, 18. You it's get starting to get worse than Star Wars tapes. It's a little bit worse than the Star Wars. So I stopped all that and I realized I could just make six or seven bucks an hour. Then I went to work for Amnesty International. I started making 10, 12 bucks an hour doing IT. And IT just opened my eyes to like, whoa. And I saw the internet early. I saw modems early. And it really opened my eyes. And then I thought, maybe I'll write a book or whatever. And then I was watching this this zine movement ha happened, Z-I-N-E. And so zines meant you published on photocopy paper and you called it a magazine. And in Tower Records, they had a section for zines. And I used to go there and look at these crazy zines. And 2600 was one of them. In 2600, they would just self-print it, self-publish it. And it was just hacking stuff, right? Is that named after like 2600 Bod? Yeah, Hertz. Yeah, I think it was Hertz, which is, I think, the when, when Captain Crunch made the whistle that would then give you dial tone. I think it was the 2600 Hertz. We can look it up online while we're here. But anyway, they used to always meet in Manhattan in the city, the Citibank building in the lobby where the phones were. And there was a sort of culture in New York of hacking and media at the same time. And I started a magazine called Cyber Surfer about dial-up because somebody had told me that Starlog and Fangora, that magazine w wanted to create... A, a magazine about CD-ROMs and dial-up. So I started Cyber Surfer magazine, which nobody knows about. And I got in a fight with the publisher after five issues. He sued me because I had trademarked the name. He didn't know I trademarked the name. I had no contract with him. I was 23 years old. Whole thing blew up. Um, and then I was like, the Silicon Alley thing is going to become something. So I started Silicon Alley Reporter as a 16-page photocopy. And Fred Wilson bought the first ad in it, uh, along with Jeff Dotches from Razorfish. No way. For He bought an ad for Flatiron? Uh, for Flatiron Partners, two hundred fifty dollars, and he uh, he bought four ads at once, so he gave me a thousand dollars. Wow, advertising like their services as a he just put the firm. logo of Flatiron Partners, uh, and this is nineteen ninety five. I got two people to give me a thousand dollars. I printed it up; it cost two thousand dollars, and I just started handing it out at parties. And I, I didn't understand how silly I looked walking around town with a luggage cart like I was like a street salesman with a stack of photocopies and I would drop them off at everybody's offices because once I got like a thousand copies of this, I didn't have the money to ship it anywhere. So I would go to Razorfish's office. I would go to Site Specific. I would go to iVillage. I would go to all these places and ask them if I could put 20 copies in the reception area and they'd say, sure. So you're going to these early internet companies. Dropping it off. And they would say, oh, you're dropping it off? Your... And I'd say, yeah, I'm the delivery boy. And they'd say, oh, that's very cool. I said, I'm also the editor. And there was a joke in the magazine. I put a CEO, editor, and delivery boy uh, on the top. Cause, and what it was was it was like quite charming to people that I believed in it so much that I would carry it with me. And then people also thought I was like, this is why I, when people say like they think I'm a huckster or a hype man or a fraud, people thought that back then because I would go to parties with a stack of them in my hands and I'd be handing them out to anybody who would take them. Uh, because I just wanted to be famous. I just wanted to be powerful. I just wanted people to know my name. It's so interesting because it's so akin to the early days of blogging. I mean, it, it's just analog blogging where the I'm sure any real publisher was looking at this like, oh, it's some kind of joke. I can't believe you're calling yourself a zine. Like, it's not a magazine. You know, this is like it's literally what people said to paper. me. And I said to them, no, I have a full page photo on the cover. That's what makes it a magazine. And they said, no, it's a newsletter. I said, no, newsletters have text on the cover of the magazine. This has a full-page photo. And then a guy named Carol Martesco emailed me because he saw the email in there. Um, and he said, hey, I do this magazine uh, called Res, and I do this filmmaker magazine. He was doing filmmaker magazine, et cetera, and he knew how to do magazines. And he was like 10 years older than me. And he said, I can print this on real magazine paper for you. And I said, how much does it cost? He said, it's going to cost $30,000. And I said, well, I have like 20000 in ads now. This is by the fifth issue. 
And uh, he said, don't worry about it. I can put it on my credit. I know the person. He printed it for me just for free, just to do it for me. And then he's like, do you have the money? You have to pay the printer. And I was like, yeah, I got to collect the money from the advertisers. And so then I went around and just asked people to give me the money and I would bring them two or three grand. Thank you, Carol Martesco. Shout out. I was still friends to this day. And he basically mentored me on how to do that. And then at a certain point, uh, my assistant, Linda Miller, said, Jan Wenner called. And I said, uh, okay. He's like, yeah, you know, from Rolling Stone. And I was like, yeah, it's like year two of the magazine. And I was like, okay, great. And then I went to lunch and then she came back. Did you call Jan Wenner back? And I was like, no. And I was like, I'll, talk, I'll call him tomorrow. I come back the next day and she goes, did, did you call Jan Wenner back? And I said, I, I don't want to do any press right now. They, and she goes, no, no, he's not a journalist. John Winter created Rolling Stone. And I said, oh, he, goes, he wants to meet with you. And so I went up, I met with John Winter, and he had all my magazines on, the, on his table. And he said, hey, I want you to come work for me and do a magazine with me. I want to do like a digital version of Rolling Stone. And I said, no, I, I want to do my own thing. Um, and I was up in his office and he had marked but all Jason, the But Jason, would that have made you famous? Like, why wouldn't you do that? I also realized, I no, it realized I would be a number two. And I never wanted to be number two. So it's about the fame and the power, or I, it was all in this that. era. All that. Fame, power, money. Fame, power, money. That's all I wanted. I just wanted to have fame, power, money. All of those things. And I just like, number two, no. And then all of a sudden, I became the king of New York because the internet hit. Magazine went to 75 full-time people, $12 million in revenue. I built it off my credit cards. I was on Charlie Rose. I was on the cover of the New York Times. And in three, four years, I went from being a nobody to writing for paper magazine. And when I would walk into any club or whatever, people knew what Silicon Eye Reporter was. And I could get into any party. And then I made a list and ranked the top 100 people in the industry. And I ranked it just to tweak people. Um, and then people would beg me to move up 10 rankings. And I got everything I wanted. And Power, The, the minus list is still yeah. doing that to this day. Yeah. And I did my first event in 1995 called Ready, Set, Pitch. And you can look it up in the New York Times. There's an article about it, Ready, Set, Pitch. And it was... Just I asked people to pitch their best idea for a, uh, a startup. And Ted Leonsis gave the keynote. So it's pretty funny. As, as you're getting all this, this power, what's going through your mind? Like, are you, are you already starting to think about? More. Are you thinking about, I parlay this into investing or I parlay X or like what's? I want it to be the next media mogul. I want it to be Eisner. I want it to be... Like Iger, I wanted to be Ovitz. Ovitz. I wanted to be somebody like that because media was power back then. It wasn't really about the tech companies. The tech companies were kind of like this, this is cute AOL, little thing on the Time side. Warner days. This is yeah. yeah, you know, like that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be one of those media executives and be the CEO of a giant media company, Barry Diller, someone like that. So you end up selling Silicon Alley Reporter to Dow Jones, right? Yeah, it kind of collapsed and we wound up selling, I got two years of salary, but the year before, Alan Mackler from internet.com had offered me $20 million for it and I owned like 85%, 90% of the company. So it was like the um, one of the most difficult times of my life because I had my chance to be rich and then I was poor again. Was it the dot-com crash? That yeah, the dot-com crash. And then 9-11 and I was there for 9-11. My brother's a firefighter. We didn't know where he was. That was the second fire he ever returned to, so it was a very scary day for me. You know, after 9-11, I was kind of left with this, oh, everything is a fraud. Everybody thinks I'm a fraud. Everybody thinks I got lucky. You had all this power. And it, oh, it was gone. It was gone. Did it disappear? Did it really disappear? Like well, you know, it really was trying for me because everything I had done had gone up and to the right, and everything I touched turned to gold. And then when you have the Midas touch and then you start touching stuff and nothing changes, it really is humbling. It's literally like you, you go from feeling like you're Superman and then you can't fly. 
And you're like, what's going on? Is there kryptonite in my shoes or something? And it was a very humbling experience for me, and it made me really angry. I remember it vividly. I just felt very angry at the world and at myself for not taking that $20 million. So it wasn't just angry about what was happening. It was like you were specifically like angry about passing on that deal. I was angry at passing on that. I was angry that the market collapsed. I was angry about 9-11. It was just angry about everything. Um, but I also had skills at that point and confidence. And so I said to myself, I am coming back and I'm going to come back and I'm going to dunk on everybody. And I will show everybody that not only am I not a fraud, that I can do this again and I can do it quicker, faster, and better. And I started looking for an idea and I was studying and studying and studying and two people who worked for me after the whole thing collapsed had moved on and started blogs. And they were doing really well with their blogs. And uh, one of them was Rafat Ali, uh, who, was doing, who was doing this paid content.org. And I had admonished him because he started it when he was working for me. I was like, listen, kid. I didn't realize Rafat worked for you. That's he, awesome. Yeah, he was one of my writers. I, was, I think I was his second job. He had, he had worked for inside.com and then for me. And he had owned the inside.com domain at one point. So there's a whole sort of history there of who got to own inside.com. At the end of the day, I can tell that story too at the end. But uh, anyway, I was like, and then Shenny Jardin went to work at Boing Boing and I found out they were both making like four or five grand. And I was like, wait a second, that's like kind of what I, that's more than, I think that's more than what I was paying you per month, per month. Just on ads on their blogs. Exactly. So I was like, wait a second, these people are working in their underwear. They have no editor. And it dawned on me, the right writer and editor is... Uh, a hindrance. They're taking out what's special about what the person said. This is like taking out the production. It's like Bob Dylan just on stage with a guitar. It's better when it's not produced. It's better when it's acoustic. And there was that thing that was going on. Um, MTV had unplugged. And I said, this is MTV unplugged for journalism. Blogs. It just clicked in my mind, clear as day. When you saw Kurt Cobain on MTV Unplugged, you wanted to throw the other records away that were studio produced. And I said, blogging is going to be a thing. So I started looking for other blogs. And this I knew this kid, Nick Denton, who had started First Tuesday. And he started Gawker. I said, hey, Nick, you know, want to have lunch? We went for lunch. I said, I'm thinking about doing a blogging thing. I think this could be big. If somebody did it for business, it would be huge. You're doing this gawk or gossip thing. I'm not interested in that. But if somebody did a business version, and then he wrote a blog post and he said, the worst thing that could ever happen to blogging is Jason Calacanis bringing his <laughs> unique brand of like whatever to it. Corporate sellouts. Well, that's of. what he said. Because I was like, you yeah. know, this would be an advertising juggernaut. Because think about it. You get rid of all of the, you get rid of like 80% of the staff. You just have the one great writer and one great salesperson. Did Valleywag exist at this time yet? No, 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 no. Valleywag okay. he created much later. It was just yeah. gawker. And, I mean, really, like, I, I've worked at the Wall Street Journal. I mean, you did too for a while. Like, yeah. they're, you know, it's a wonderful organization. There are a thousand people in that building. Yeah. Like, it's crazy. You don't need that to. No, do you don't this. need a building. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need middle management. I mean, you don't need anything. So I was really taken by, you know, Denton's vision for this. And I was like, are you going to do more? And he's like, yeah, we're doing this. We're going to do a political one, I think. And we're going to do this one on gadgets. Like, you know, like the uh, fetish thing in Wired Magazine. We're going to just make that into a whole thing. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So he writes his blog post trashing me. And I was like, you wanna <laughs> And so, you know, like I'm a pretty aggressive guy. And I was like, so I, my partner, Brian Alvey, who I convinced to do this with me, this is 2003, none of us had any money. We're doing it all for free. The, the economy was flatlined. I said, I'm gonna destroy him. 
Which it turns out you were not the last person to have that thought. <laughs> no, no, no. I was not the I was not the first for I was the might have been the first, but not the last. I said, I have to destroy Nick Denton. Um, how am I gonna do this? And I said, um, oh, I know, talent. There's nothing worse than losing talent. Elizabeth Spears, she's right, she's writing Gawker. I'm gonna make a run at her. And I had heard that he was paying the writers fifteen hundred dollars. And the MacBook Air had just come out. I contacted Elizabeth and I said, let's have coffee, whatever. And she agreed to have coffee or something. Uh, and there's like a photo of it actually of me talking to her at a bar that somebody took in the early days. And she's looking at me like I am the Antichrist. And I was like, you are a unique talent. Nick Denton will never give you equity. I will give you equity. You will become a millionaire. I'll give you a MacBook Air and I'll give you two grand a month, which is a 33% more raise. She was like, yeah, no, I'm going to go work for New York Magazine. And I was like, that's the worst career move you could ever make, Elizabeth. Magazines are going to die. Blogs are going to take over. There's no way magazines can ever keep up with blogs. Whatever they print is going to be old news, and you're already proving it. You're number one at blogging, and you're going to become number 500 at a magazine. So she wouldn't do it. Um, and then Shenny Jardin said to me, oh, you picked the wrong target. I was talking to her because I was trying to recruit her. And she's like, no, no, I love this Boing Boing thing. I don't want to do anything commercial. And I was like, all right, that's fair enough. I was like, who should I target? She goes, oh, you, you picked the wrong target. I said, what do you mean? She goes, oh. Nick's not making any money on Gawker. Gawker doesn't make any money. It loses money. I was like, okay, tell me more. She goes, 100% of the revenue is coming from Gizmodo. I said, oh, okay. He goes, do you know Peter Rojas? I was like, yeah, I've heard of him. I was like, That's the one you want. So I went to Peter Rojas, and I uh, called uh, this guy I knew who was running Jewel Baku, which was like a fancy sushi place in the Lower East Side. And uh, he was the owner and his wife, and it was like a pretty hot ticket. And I asked Peter to come have sushi with me. And his wife, Jill, or his girlfriend at the time, she said, can I bring my girlfriend? I said, of course. We go there, and uh, I'm prepared to like knock their socks off with his omakase. And I said, you guys have anything, you know, in terms of like dye? And they're like, well, we're vegans. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay, yeah, that's no, no problem. I said, give me one second. I go back to the guy. I said, listen, this is, I'm trying to close this deal. It's, like, it's really important. Like, they're vegans. He's like, don't worry about it. I'll be right back. He runs to the Korean grocery in the store. He comes back with two big shopping bags full of things. And he makes them the most amazing omakase with vegetables. Love yeah. It. And so I said to Peter, I said, Peter, you know, um, Nick Denton is a bad actor. And equity is what you need. And if you join me and you create a Gizmodo killer, uh, I'll give you equity in the company. And uh, you will become a millionaire. And uh, we'll be in it together. You'll be a partner. And he goes, well, Nick said he's going to give me equity. I said, he'll never give you equity. When did he tell you that? He said, he told me that like six months ago. I was like, yeah, how's yeah. that going? <laughs> I said, I will give you equity on day one, fully vested, everything, uh, just like me. And he said, uh, okay, uh, let me think about it. And he came back and he said, okay, I'll do it. I said, great. Um, he said, but you know- This is so great because uh, by the way, at this point in time, this is, I'm probably 17, 18, 19 years old at this point. I'm reading Gizmodo every single day and I always wanted to know- what happened? How did Engadget become better? I never knew. Like, yeah. This is the story. And uh, he says, oh, my my girlfriend Jill made a logo. And Jill made the first Engadget logo. I was like, great. He said, can we pay her for it? I was like, sure we can. And I was like, what does she charge for a logo? And he's like, 300. I was like, give her 500. It's fine. Because uh, Mark Cuban had given me $300,000 for 15% of Weblogs Inc. How'd you get to know Mark? I had no mark because I had written broadcast.com is a billion dollars worth of hot air in Silicon Valley Reporter. <laughs> and he... He reached out to you. a gasket. And I said, well, your revenue is like 10 million. He's like, 
you know what the revenue is next quarter? I was like, no, you're a publicly traded company. Of course I don't. He's like, well, why don't you wait? And then he, revenue went from 10 to like 60, you know, like quarter over quarter. And I was like, okay, it's not a billion dollars in hot air. And I did a Mia Copa kind of situation. Anyway, we became good friends, Mark and I, for a long time. And he put 300K in. We started Blog Maverick for him. Um, Brian Alvey came up with the name. Brian, Brian Alvey came up with all the good names. The best collaborator I've ever had in my life. And, uh, and Peter. And uh, so Peter said, listen, you know, I just, I feel really bad about this stuff with Nick Denton. I was like, you shouldn't feel bad. This guy promised you equity and he gave you nothing and you've given him this incredible brand that's going to become worth millions of dollars. You should feel zero guilt. He, he robbed you of your vision and we're going to take it back. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you're, maybe you're right. And I was like, yeah. Because listen, I, I've been in fights and, you know, if somebody takes no. a swing at you, like somebody gets a, if somebody sucker punches you, uh, you have to teach them a lesson um, so they don't do it again. Because if you don't teach them a lesson, what I learned is they will come back. It has to be such a, a beatdown. It has to be so painful that the person says, I should have never punched that. I should never sucker punch that guy. That's how powerful the beatdown has to be. It can't just be retribution of one for one. If they punch you, you have to annihilate them. This is what I learned about violence when I was growing up. And I've since disavowed this, but this is literally what I saw on the streets of Brooklyn in the 70s and 80s. So I said, uh, when are you going to tell Nick? And he said, well, he's, you know, he's been working so hard for like a year or half or whatever, and he's just burnt out. He's been working seven days a week on this, and he said he's going to take his first vacation. I said, oh, really? He's like, yeah, yeah, and he's going down to Brazil or whatever, and all these famous people are going. I was like, when is he going? He's like, he's going Sunday. I was like, oh, wh what time is he leaving? He's, I don't know what time he's leaving. I said, okay. Uh, and I looked up online, like flights to Brazil, whatever. I couldn't kind of figure it out. And I was like, all right, well, listen, I want you to write a blog post about this. We're launching the site at 2 p.m. on Sunday. <laughs> and we literally launched the site the first day of his vacation. He landed with his people going, Gizmodo has no blogger. We have all these advertisers and there's a competitor. Oh, my God. And that was the approach I used to take to competition. I don't do that anymore, but... Well, by the way, and the, and the postscript to that is Denton and I became very good friends after that for a long time and still are. And I consider him one of the just the great publishers. But you of can't graze over that. How, so how, yeah, yeah. How, Wait, how, how does that how do you become friends with <laughs> Oh, he reached that? out. He reached out afterwards. He wrote a blog post actually saying, you know, Jason really stuck it to me, but we're we're gonna be great competitors. And then I launched Joystick and then he launched um Kotaku, then I launched Autoblog, then he launched Jalopnik. And when we were head to head, we always had three, four or five times the traffic as him. But it created this rivalry that everybody followed. It became Coke, Pepsi. It became, you know, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. pick media company versus media company. And, and everybody was following this great competition between this brash Brooklyn kid and this aloof, you know, quiet. Well, it probably made you, get, made you both better. Right? Oh, it made us incredibly much better. But, you know, it was like literally this like quietly gay, you know, very understated Brit versus this brash Brooklyn bulldog. And it just played really well in the press. And you can, if you type Denton Calacanis into Google and look at some of the posts from back then, it's hilarious. And it was just a good time. Um, but he reached out to me and he said, listen, um, I think we should have a, um, you know, Jason, um, respect, uh, respect for what you did there. I understand, um, you know, and Peter, best of luck with Peter. And, uh, you know, we went for a half coffee, whatever. And we're sitting there and he said, um, I have a proposal for you. And I said, yes. He goes, think that um you know if we're going to have this spirited com competition that's great well, you know good for the game and all that and 
uh, you're, you're a worthy competitor, and obviously you've been able to. And you're just waiting for the knife to come out. Well, right? yeah, and I'm just like, okay, this Get could escalate. It. Yeah. And he said, um, I'm proposing a no poach um, agreement. <laughs> and I said, what does it mean? He goes, well, we just, you know, we, there's no need. For, there's so many writers out there. We're, we're, we're not enemies. What we're fighting against is the magazines and the newspapers. You know, we're, we're up against the New York Times, and it's a know, good that's enough competition yeah. for us. And I, and I said, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so we will, uh, we agreed to not poach each other's writers. Well, Jason, I got to tell you just a quick personal note, and this will surprise zero longtime listeners of the show. Like, I think the number one website that I checked every single day in high school was the unofficial Apple weblog. Uh, like, Twa, T-U-A-W. Yep. Um, there's an interesting story to that. We called it the Apple weblog and, um, Steve got upset. No uh, way. Yeah. And, uh, they, we got a phone call and I said, okay. We actually had called it the unofficial Apple weblog, and Apple called. Steve told us people to call. We had a pretty close relationship with Steve, or at least Peter did. And, you know, Steve responded to our emails. Well, Steve always I, realized the power of the media. Well, yes. I mean, Steve was the master. And, I, and I, I'd, I'd spoken to Steve in person two or three times and over email, you know, a half dozen times during the Engadget time. Peter, much more. Uh, he really loved Peter. And, and Steve was really great. And uh, anyway, they had some sort of problem with it, and they said, you can't use Apple in the name. And I said, okay. And I just said, you know, it's back when you could buy domain names. And I said, the unofficial Apple weblog. I said, this should make it an acronym, TWA. And then just build a logo. And, and I think Jill Fehrenbacher, you know, uh, Peter's now wife, uh, mother of his kids. I think she built that one as well. Took the little leaf of the apple and just threw it above the TWA and called it a day. Well, that was kind of, I think that was Brian Alvey's joke. Is like, it sounds like it's French. So let's put it as like an accent de grave on top of the thing. <laughs> and I was like, sure, let's troll them. Um, it was just like a lot of crazy stories like that. Um, and uh, long story short, that company lasted 18 months. We got we sold it for $30 million uh, to AOL. AOL. And uh, we this had is all of Weblogs Inc. This is all these, all of Weblogs Inc. Yeah. We had $100,000 in revenue to date and probably 200000 looking forward. So depending on how you count that, they paid three. <laughs> They played a big multiple. But uh, but the real question, though, is like, looking back now, was that actually a good idea to sell? Of course. Yeah. I mean, if you, that gave me the money to become dangerous and it gave me that foundation. You know, when you get that, you know, the first 10 million is the hardest. Um, and once you get that under your belt, you're dangerous. Nobody can stop you. I mean, I was already dangerous because I didn't care. But once you get the cash, then you really have the ability to not care. Right. So it's like, if you hadn't sold and now we're still an independent company, that we would be worth, worth a lot more money. I mean, today. listen, here's the joke. Denton wound up selling, I think, for 150 or something like that. And then half of it went to um, this new company that had put in the bridge financing. And then some amount went to Hulk Hogan and Peter Thiel. And then some amount got left over. I think we wound up netting about the same. <laughs> it just took him 12 years. and It took me 18 it took months. Me, right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you know they always, what but I always... You, you got to start writing your next chapter. Exactly. You you know, the thing the is, I, I had what the, the, the great thing about Silicon Alley reporter crashing and burning was I learned very early on that I was more than the brand. Because the brand Silicon Alley Report had gotten so big and I was so identified with it that I started people would call me the Silicon Alley reporter. That was like what people would refer to me as. Um, and because it crashed and burned, I was forced to disconnect myself from that. And I, Bob Dylan was always my favorite artist. And I had always studied um, and been obsessed with how he went from like folk to electric and rock to gospel and this, 
yeah, he just kept reiterating. And then he started collaborating with Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits and did Empire Burlesque and, you know, all these other really infidels and these very interesting albums. Um, and I seen Bob Dylan maybe 20 times, um, you know, in person. Uh, and he was, you know, always my favorite. And I was like, don't look back. And I just told myself, you cannot look back. And I, I never look at my press scripts. The amount of press I got in the 90s between being on Charlie Rose, being on 60 Minutes, all that stuff. I knew that I was never going to top that. You know, like that was a moment in time. And I didn't want to top it. Who cares? Like I, I put all that press in boxes. I taped it up and it's literally in my brother's garage in New York still. I don't want to ever look at those clips. Don't look back. Only forward. Next brand, next brand, next brand. Don't worry about the last brand. Uh, and that's how I looked at myself at that point. I, I looked at myself and I said, you know what? Kurosawa did all those samurai films and then he went into noir and the noir stuff was better. And nobody even knows about the noir, you know, the film noir stuff he did, High and Low, Stray Dog, you know, all this kind of stuff. Is it after then the next chapter, you get you get money, you're back in the game after I'm in the game, logs. baby. Is that when you moved to LA? I had been living in LA um, when we start uh, right after we started Weblogs Inc. Yeah. And at this point, do you still want to be famous? Like once you've adopted this mentality of don't look back, are you still fame driven? No, fame wasn't. I I really wanted to build things. I had gotten into the mode of building, um, not to say Was empire that from building. Hanging out but with like Silicon Valley types. I think it was. I think also when you get the win under your belt, it takes the edge off. And I always tell that to young founders. Like, you know, winning really takes the edge off. Um, and you will be successful. It may take two or three companies. You know, if 60, 70% of these things fail, don't worry about it. Just start three or four. You're going to have a hit. And nobody remembers. Like, we're sitting here. When people meet me, they, they don't know what Mahalo is. They don't know what Silicon Valley Reporter is. They don't even know any of this stuff. Nobody has any sense of history. But people are all caught up in their own history. I, I for sure had a Mahalo account. Yeah. I mean, Mahalo did really well. I mean, that's a whole nother story, but yeah. That, that's another one, right? Where you just, you build a brand that becomes so big and you, you kind of get associated with it and then you have a big flame out and it's like, who cares? Just move on. Next one. We'll get there. But I do want to talk yeah. about the Mahalo, Pounce, Twitter, that sort of uh, uh, Tumblr, like, yeah. let, let's, let me put a pin in that. And David, yeah. keep running with your, your line here. Well, okay, so this is this is a diversion, but we sidetrack, but we got to cover it. When you're in LA, how do you meet Travis Kalanick? Well, I when I was doing Silicon Eye Reporter, we had started a um, an edition called Digital Coast Reporter, and I had interviewed Travis when he was doing Scour, which was his first company. Oh wow, yeah, and which uh, was sued and and he got sued and all that stuff, and he told the famous story, and that was the night allegedly when Michael Ovitz's people came and were in the audience at my event, I used to do a CEO interview and I interviewed him. So that was that famous story. And then he did Red Solution. We'd always been friends and we'd always liked each other. And that, and that's how I wound up investing in Uber because he, when he was raising money for it, he wasn't going to be the CEO. Uh, he was like, hey, I'm doing this company. It was like, a you know, Ryan and him. And and Ryan uh, was CEO? Or Ryan was going to be CEO. And okay. then I was going to invest a little bit of money and I was helping Ryan raise money. And then he said, you know what? I'm going to be the CEO. I said, what happened with Ryan? And I was like, oh, it's just, this is looking a little shaky or whatever. And then I just made it as the first scout bet. And I introduced, I think, first round and definitely Cyan. We're at the Open Angel Forum, the little event I used to start where I matched angels. And So at this point, yeah. you're you're running Mahalo at this point. Yep. So I actually didn't realize, was Uber the very first scout investment? I think it was the third. I think third. I, had, okay. I had, in the first seven, there were this three is, unicorns. And this is Thumbtack, Sequoia Scout. 
as a Sequoia Scout, I, I had in the first seven, Uber, Thumbtack, and Datastacks. So three companies, three unicorns, one of them public, Decacorn. Um, we'll see about the other two, but I, I think the other two got a chance to go in public too. And so our, our listeners understand here, and we didn't list all the companies that you've angel invested in, but we're going to keep touching on them as we go. Like, so when you're investing as a scout, that's not your own money. So how did the economics no, work on that? It was 50-50. So it's 50-50 basically splitting the carry, the, the profits. Yeah, split the carry, investment. split the profits, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. They since dropped it, I think, to 35 or 30, like a normally high <laughs> carry. How did this happen, though? Like, what well, did, Ruloff you, did you go me. to Ruloff, or did Ruloff I had, come to you? I had lobbied Sequoia. I had emailed Sequoia and lobbied them to invest in my friend's poker game, um, Zynga Poker. <laughs> wait, wait, I'm sorry, what is that? Yeah. Poker game. <laughs> he, my friend created a virtual poker game, uh, Mark uh, Pincus, called Zynga. And our dogs oh, used to play together. I've never heard of it. And uh, I invested, I said, hey, you should invest in this. And they, they couldn't get there. Um, but my but my other friend, Fred Wilson. You were a portfolio entrepreneur. I was a portfolio company. And I said, hey, you know, this Twitter thing's going to be big. And this Zynga thing's going to be big. And I was pushing rule off. And I, I have an email where I told Michael Moritz, and you have to get the Twitter deal. You have to get the Zynga deals. These are very important companies. Um, and then my friend, Fred what Wilson. Did they, what did they say? They, they, I said, they went the next day, actually, and tried to close Twitter, but they couldn't get their head around the valuations or whatever it was at the time. I'm not sure their exact objections. Both of those cases, Fred Wilson had invested and actually introduced me to Mark Pincus, and Mark Pincus and Evan Williams and I were talking, Sequoia or Fred Wilson. And I was a Sequoia CEO, and I said, listen, when you are a Sequoia CEO, your phone rings off the hook. Everybody wants to do your Series B. I raised my Series B for Mahalo before launching the product six months after I had raised my Series A. And I went from an $11 million valuation to a $100 million valuation. Wow. And this is in 2006? Yeah. Uh, 2006, yeah. And Mark Pincus and Evan were like, how did you go from $11 million to $100 million before the product <laughs> launched in six months? I was like, I don't know. And uh, they were going for like 30 or $40 million, I think, each. And uh, they were further along and their products were launched. I said, listen, Fred Wilson's East Coast. He's awesome. He's like one of my best friends for a long time. He got helped me get in business. His wife, Joanne, worked with me at Silicon Eye Reporter as a salesperson. And you know, but and, and also Joanne Wilson, his wife, worked with me at Silicon Eye Reporter. And, and the reason it was so successful is she was the salesperson and she was uh, like I mean, it was it was two bulldogs. Like she's a tiger. And she's now a great angel investor herself. Absolutely, yes. And um and and just one of the great collaborators I've ever had in my career. And anyway, long story short, I said, listen, you're, you know, you're picking between Fred, who's like the up and coming hustler, who will work hard, and but you know, he's a he's East Coast, and a lot of people, you know, are you know, Fred thinks Sequoia is the gold standard. Fred would tell you to take Sequoia's money, but I think Fred is great too. So I actually think it's a coin toss. You can't lose. And they were both struggling to take the, which who would take that deal. I think that gave me the credibility with Sequoia, um, that they said, Jason keeps sending us these great deals. There's many more companies now. Jason has this collaboration with Arrington for TechCrunch 50, and they broke up, and now he's doing this launch festival on his own. And Ruloff came up with this idea. What if we raised like a $3 million, $2 or $3 million fund, and we just gave everybody the ability to make 25, 50K checks? And there was this issue of signaling in the industry back then, yeah. where if Sequoia gave you money and you, they didn't give you the next round, your company was dead. That was the end of your company because you were then- Obviously, the trick is do what you did and just raise your next round before anything even happens. Well, that works too. But you know, the idea is like you would if, if your venture fund did not follow on, you were damaged goods. 
uh, and nobody else would. And the higher profile the fund, the higher profile the signaling risk. So Sequoia was acutely aware of this. So they just said, the Scouts program, we won't announce. It'll be on the DL. You can tell people what it is when you make the check. You don't have to. You can. We just weren't sure what to do. And so I just went around town and I said, okay. I started this thing, Open Angel Forum, and I tried to kill something called Koretsu Forum, which was charging people $5,000. Yeah, I remember. So I went to war with them and they got really upset and called Michael Moritz on the phone <laughs> and told him like, <laughs> Who is this employee of yours? He's like, not employee of ours. <laughs> well, he said he's going to kill the he's going to kill the Koretsu for him, and he's like, why would he say that? And Moritz called me, <laughs> and he said, did you, Jason, did you tell them you were going to murder them? <laughs> I was like, yeah. You really love uh, these situations where you you War. take a mild mannered Brit and you really anger them in a way where they have to have a talking. No, to no, him. Michael Moritz was not angry. He, he's like, well, why, why would you tell? <laughs> he probably them? loved him. I'm just curious. <laughs> and Moritz is cool as ice. Um, he's the greatest. And I said, well, they're charging founders $5,000 to meet angel investors. He goes, oh, that's terrible. I said, yeah, so I want to kill them. He's like, oh, okay, carry on. <laughs> so that was the end of the phone call. It was great. So great. Oh, so great. So anyway, uh, I started Open Angel Forum, and I just started, at, you know, Thumbtack, uh, Stylesheet, Datastacks, all these signposts, all these great companies just came. And, well, I just, and Uber actually And Uber came. Open Angel. And Uber yeah. came, yeah. And uh, on the spot, myself. Saka was there, but Saka knew Travis before. And uh, Cyan Bannister invested in them. I introduced Cyan Bannister to Thumbtack and Uber. She's always been very gracious about giving me credit for that. And I mean, first round, I, I think I introduced them, but I think that maybe they claim I didn't, or maybe somebody else in the firm had heard about it as well. Who knows? You know, like a success has a million- <laughs> A million father. Father, so, so an orphan. So, okay, so all this is going, what, what's going through your head as this is happening? Like you're running Mahalo. Mahalo's super high. Yeah, I mean, they anointed me. You know, Sequoia anointed me. Now I became dangerous because now I wasn't just East Coast anointed, I was West Coast anointed. You understand? Yep. And nobody really had ever done that. That was a very unique thing. And I knew it. I think a lot of our audience probably has not ever heard of Mahalo. So fill us in real quick on So anyway, on I had that. this idea- I emailed Michael Moritz, John Doerr, and Mark Cuban. And I said, I have an idea for my next company. I didn't know any venture capitalists. Even through all of this, I really didn't know any of the West Coast venture capitalists. But I knew John Doerr and Michael Moritz were the number one and number two. Probably in reverse order, Michael Moritz and John Doerr. But anyway, there's an argument about that. I had run into Moritz one time at like a conference. He wouldn't remember me. But I emailed Michael Moritz and I said, I have my next idea for a company. I sold my last company to AOL for $30 million, 18 months after I started it. Would love to get your advice. Shortest email possible with a little microphone drop in it. And Moritz called both of my phone numbers and emailed me and his assistant called me all within one hour of me sending the email. I was gonna, I was gonna ask how many minutes did it take to respond? John Doerr, uh, somebody on his team, got me the next day. I was in both their offices next week. And also Mark Cuban said, because I think when we sold, we turned just 150 into five or 6 million. So he said, put me down for a million uh, or whatever you want, Jason. Uh, I think there was actually a second payment coming and he just CC'd his attorney and said, whatever the second payment is for the AOL thing, it was like a million bucks. He said, just throw it into Jason's next thing, which is, you know, very Mark Cuban thing to do. Okay, um, so here's the question. Did you actually have the idea or did you just I did, I did email? have the idea. <laughs> and my idea was I had gone to, uh, Wikipedia was like the thing at that point in time. And I went to Wikimania, which was like their conference up in Boston. And I studied the wiki software. I started playing with it. And I made a little proof of concept where... Google was dealing with web spam at the time. And the order of the links weren't very good. My wife's Korean, and I had heard about Daum, D-A-U-M.net, and comprehensive search in Korea. And in Korea, Daum owned the blogging company and the picture hosting company. And they, when you did a search, they would show pictures, they would show links, pictures, and blog posts on, on one page. 
And so I made this comprehensive search and I said, it's going to be called 20.com, the top 20 links for any keyword. And I went into the meeting and I put three pieces of paper on the table. And I, I don't think I've ever told the story. And uh, I, I said, um, iPod, look at these 10 blue links. These are the search results. One's Yahoo, one's 20.com, and um, one is Google. Which one do you like best? And Moritz and Ruloff pointed to the one and they turned it over. I said, turn it over. And it said, 20.com. I said, turn the over to over. Boom. I did it again. I said, Kauai vacation. And they picked mine again. And I said, they said, how did you, why is yours the best? And I said, I had a human look at the Google result and make a Wikipedia page. And they said, that's great. And Michael Moore said, oh, that's a great idea. Um, what are you looking to do? I was like, uh, I want $3 million for 25% of the company. And he said, okay, work with Roloff. And he walked out. And he was on the board of Google. And he's like, I can't be on the, I can't do this, but Roloff can. And it's not competitive with Google. It's, you know, whatever. It's a wiki, whatever. And um, that was the start of it. And then my friend Elon put some money in. Uh, he was just um, casual working at a rocket company. He just called me. He's like, I think you're smart. I'll put some money in. You want um, to diversify and then, out of hardware. Uh, Rupert Murdoch put some money in. CBS put some money in. Just a bunch of people. And, you know, whatever. I was I was on the top of my game. Got the company at $10 million in Google AdSense revenue. And then Matt Cutts uh, felt oh, yeah. like yep, we were getting too big and eHow was getting too big. Um, there was also uh, Cosmics, right? Yeah, Cosmics, WikiHow. Just there was a whole cohort of us making content. And let's let's pause for a minute, just just to catch everyone up on Matt Cutts. So Matt solved a really hard problem for Google over the course of a decade, which was basically link spam. It's how do we stop people who are gaming Google and getting too high in the rankings and getting too much With traffic SEO. and abusing us? Yeah, and I think Matt actually is leading a really important initiative now in the federal government at the um, the U.S. Digital Service. Well, what would happen is. Our pages were so good that Kauai Vacation would rank in the top five and people would blog about it, link to it, and ask us to update the links. And then we started putting content on the pages. So we had content on the pages. So basically Google, this was all on their roadmap, but I created was on Google's roadmap five years, 10 years before they got there. Because if you Google, Google Kauai Vacation on Google, now, you get that now. You get, so you I was five or 10 this. years ahead of them um, and they were going to do it machines. They, Marissa said, I don't think Jason's right. We had this like debate um, at the at a conference at one point. Somebody asked her about Mahalo. She said, I, I don't think humans can scale. We're going to do it with robots. Anyway, then they basically took 90% of our traffic away. And the punchline was they took 90% of their own revenue away because the way we were monetizing was with their with tools. And then I said to Matt, and I called up Sergey Brin, and I called up everybody I knew there. And I was like, what are you guys doing? You just killed my site. I have to lay off 100 people. And we got in this big public spat. And uh, they're like, yeah, you know, we don't know. And I was like, well, we're partners. And Matt Cutts was like, we don't have partners. And I was like, I forwarded him the email from the AdSense team that said partner meeting and that they, you know, and partner lunch and partner this and partner that. And he's like, yeah, that's a different group. I'm like, but you're still Google. And they literally took everybody who would eventually become competitive with them and they just neutered us. And this is why I think, you know, Google will face antitrust action like they did in Europe. Uh, maybe here eventually. And I think Yelp's right. What they did to Yelp. Yeah, uh, the same thing. Was equally bad. I mean, they basically studied us, copied us, killed us. But I mean, I learned a really important lesson there, which is like, don't have a dependency. But the problem was, you know, just the thing grew so quick. I was like, we're making, we're on, we're on a $10 million runway. We're making just a lot of money every day uh, at the peak in AdSense. And this is all hunky-dory. I was like, they'll never shut us off. We're we're sending, we're giving 30 cents of every right, dollar to them. Yeah. And I was wrong. You know, they had a long game. They just didn't want Mahalo.com and other things to exist. So they killed us. And then I pivoted it to Inside. And it's still going today, 12 years later. And, you know, it's, it's actually doing really well for email newsletters.
Wow. <laughs> what's old is new again. Exactly. So what's what's going through your head at this point in time about like, okay, what is your next act? Like, like Well, the a- scouts thing I didn't take too seriously. I just thought it was a fun diversion. Um, and then they got about, a, I don't know, halfway through the program and Ruloff said to me, you know, nobody else is making investments. I think like Sam did Stripe or something. You did Uber and you did four and Sam did two. Sam Altman had done Stripe. And uh, they said, you know, this fund, we might not do another scouts thing. So, you know, you, we've got like a million left in the fund. And I was like, wait, oh, wait, you don't, have to, hang on. You don't so, have to tell so me the, the buffet's the open. fund is Uber, Stripe, Thumbtack. Data Stacks. Data Stacks. I mean, that fund is the greatest fund in Sequoia's history on a percentage return basis, I believe. I don't know that for and, sure. And, $3 million. Not on cash, you, though. We, not on cash. On multiple sure, on cash. On it multiple. Might, on multiple and, cash, it's definitely in their top five, I would think. But it's, and they're you know, saying to you, we don't know if we're going to do this again. Well, it was very early days. We didn't know. Um, and they're like, we still have all this money left in the fund. So Ruloff was like, if you want to make some more. So I did 19 investments. I put 700 to work. It became worth over $100 million in total, uh, largely due to uh, what uh, an Uber. And then my friend Naval had been coming to the Open Angel Forum because he was doing venture hacks and he was an angel investor. And he said, listen, I'm going to start this thing angelless. And it's kind of competitive. So, and I was like, no, this is, you're doing online. Online is dumb. I, you know, like ain't, nobody's going to invest online. It's all in person. And he's like, yeah, I, I disagree. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't know, Naval. I don't think, I don't see anybody investing blindly online. He's like, well, this is new thing, SPVs and syndicates. And I was like, explain that to me. And he explained it to me. And I was like, I don't understand it. He explained it to me again. Explained it to me again. And then he sent me a link and it was, you know, angel.co slash Jason says syndicate. And it said, you know, set up your syndicate here. And I filled out the stuff and I tweeted it. And then he called me on the phone and said, what are you doing? And I said, what? And he said, you're not supposed to tweet it. I said, it says on the page, tweet your syndicate. He goes, I didn't launch it yet. It's launching on Monday. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. You want me to take it down? And he's like, no, don't worry about it. TechCrunch got the embargo, but they're upset. Um, I was like, nobody's going to see it. It's on Twitter. Nobody's on Twitter. And it's it's also so interesting that like in your head, you're like, this is, I don't, I don't get it. Why would people sort of like invest alongside another person without ever meeting the company in person. And that's what Sequoia was doing with you. They were giving you money. And yeah, saying, no, yeah, I'm not, listen, Ben, I'm not saying I'm the smartest guy in the class. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I never said that. That's not my claim. Okay. I'm a hustler. All right. That's why I made that self-deprecating joke in the book that you were so nice to read. You know, like <laughs> I am a hype guy. Um, I'm not a complete fraud. I, I'm, that's kind of me being self-deprecating. But, uh, you know, I've definitely been lucky and I'm definitely good at hyping things. So, I mean, that's why... Naval sent me the link. Anyway, a bunch of people join. Tim Ferriss launches his. I don't think we should glaze over this. Like the set of people you've already talked about, clearly there's something special about the way you build relationships. I mean, yes. you're you're I'm keen fun. to spot yourself like as a as a hustler, as someone that works hard, as someone that is extremely driven. But lost in, I think the way that you think about this is, oh my God, are you good at at building relationships and and making it so people want to help you, like helping them, knowing that over the next 10 years, that's going to be a good bet? Um, I think enthusiasm is contagious. Um, so I've always been very enthusiastic what I do. And I always pick up the check. And I always set up dinners with a lot of people. And I always introduce people to other people with no intent of capitalizing on that. Like Tim O'Reilly invited me to a food camp early on where Larry Page came in his helicopter and landed it outside of food camp. And I was like, Larry, what are you doing? Like, you realize how douchey it is to land your own helicopter? He's like, you think so? I was like, dude, come on, man. Just land it at the airport. I mean, we know you're rich. Like, you don't have to fly your goddamn helicopter from Palo Alto. He's like, you're probably right, Jason. I totally admonished Larry. Uh, It was pretty funny. But he did literally have them clear the field so he could land his 
helicopter. He was taking helicopter lessons at the time at Fu. So I'm not speaking out of school. He literally landed his helicopter there. Um, anyway, um, Tim O'Reilly said something about like, I can't, I can't remember the exact phrase. You'll find it put in the notes. But he said something about like, the if you extract very little from the network you're building, you do really well. Like you don't need to extract all the value. Yeah, it's like the Bill Gates platform quote. Something like that, yeah. But he evolved. He said it better. Uh, we'll come to it. But this is sort of thing about networks. Anyway, so I was always just introducing people to everybody. In fact, I remember when I was at the top of my game with Engadget, I was at Sundance. And my friend David Sachs was producing a movie there called Thank You for Smoking. So we were all there. I just sold Weblogs, Inc. Elon, myself, Sachs were all hanging out. My wife and uh, his wife at the time. And... Sachs's new girlfriend, who's now his wife. And um, Walt Mossberg is there, and he says, hey, let's have lunch, because uh, he knew I was there. I was like, yeah, sure. Um, and I was like, hey, you know, let's meet over here. I'm going to bring my friend Elon. He's like, who? I'm like, Elon Musk. He's doing this like thing or whatever. And, you know, Walt Mossberg was very big there, and he's like, he wrote me this admonishing email. I agreed to have lunch with you, not Elon Musk. You forcing me to have lunch with this person like is just unfair, like our friendship, whatever. I was just like, oh, okay, I won't bring him. You, out. <laughs> you know, Walt was very sensitive at the time. Everyone was trying to get to Walt. And so he felt like I was trying to put Elon in front of him. And Elon didn't even know. I was I, I was just like, Elon's here. Elon wasn't running Tesla at the time. He was just an investor and he was doing the SpaceX stuff. I was like, you should meet my friend Elon. So, so you're good at-, at you know. I was always good at just connecting people and meeting people together and just hanging out with people. Like my book agent, John Brockman, had introduced me to Sam Harris. You know, Sam was on my podcast and he did like an AMA for Mahalo. And he said, how do you do podcasting? I was like, you know, you're built for podcasting. He's like, you think I should do a podcast? I was like, absolutely, you're built for it. He's like, what do I need? I'm like, a guest and a microphone. He's like, oh. I was like, you can use my studio. <laughs> anyway, I convinced him to do a podcast and now like the rest is history. Um, and I introduced Sam to Elon. And then we all started talking about AI and Elon introduced Sam to a the concept of AI and all this AI stuff going on in the book, Super Intelligence and all that. And then the people who write Westworld, Christopher Nolan yeah, and, Lisa, and Joy. Lisa Joy, then met Elon and Sam. And if you, like literally the entire season this year, I'm watching it. I'm like, this is a conversation I had with the four of these people at dinner <laughs> oh my God. like three or four years ago. It's pretty surreal. I always picked up the check and I always brought everybody to dinner. That's why I got good at this. And I'm, you know, we're, that's we're not, how you- We're not yeah. doing playbook this episode, but this is the yeah. uh, little- like that's the that's, the that's your mini playbook. Just always buy dinner. Okay, so I gotta ask though that that playbook, that mindset, that wanting power and connecting people. Yeah. As Mahalo is you know post panda going yeah. on. Yeah, the panda is the update that Google did. Yeah. Why do you not go join a venture capital firm and become a traditional venture capitalist? Self awareness. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the which you can't have to be a VC, as we all know. Well. Here's the thing. It's called a venture partnership. And that's not what I do, right? Like, I like to make my own decision, and I'm like the solo artist. Like, you put somebody like me in a band, the band will break up. Like, right, not your a good hero idea. is Bob Dylan, not like Eddie Vedder. Yeah. You know, like, you, you, I could play, you know, I, I could play with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, but I'm going to write my own albums. I want to do my own thing. I don't want to... I want to keep it small and authentic and true to what I want to do. And I'm, I did have a, a bunch of venture firms uh, over the year make runs at me and then maybe want to incorporate my little empire into their empires. Uh, you know, it'd be a pretty good feeder. You could plug what I'm doing into something bigger. If you were a billion-dollar late-stage fund, imagine having, you know, the only real viable Y Combinator competitor out there. 
as the top of your funnel, the only real angel list coexist or competitor. Th these things are not really competitors when you think of them, they're really coexisters, but you know, we're the number one largest syndicate in the world and AngelList is the largest collection of syndicates. But if you took the top two or three syndicates together, they would be smaller than ours um, on AngelList. And then you look at our program, like really the only people who compete with AngelList, had, uh, with a Y Combinator heads up, like the only reason, we've had people pick us over Y Combinator and people pick Y Combinator over us or go to Y Combinator and then come to us. Like we're really the only, I think, accelerator who can say that. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts, so frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com slash acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. Jason, I want to tee this up in, in this yeah. direction. So you want to be a solo artist, not I am a solo know, artist. not join a band. Or I'm sorry, at this point in time, I'm just playing through what's in your head. Yeah, yeah. You, you want to be a solo artist, but you also deeply understand returns to scale. As you're thinking through this week in startups, the syndicate, which I want to really understand mechanically how that formed and how that works, how are you thinking about scaling what is working for you? Yeah. So I had started the podcast as Calacanis cast, and we did 40 episodes or so of that, just on an open microphone in a room. And I did it with Ron Conway, and I did it with Ev Williams, because my friend Dave Weiner had started, who created RSS, said, hey, Jason, check this out. Um, you can attach a file to an RSS feed. I was like, oh, you could put a PDF in there? It's like, yeah, <laughs> you could put a PDF in there, but that's the same thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, again, I'm not the smartest kid in the class. He's like, check this out. And it was an RSS feed with MP3s. And I said, oh, he's like, now check this out. And he sent me a little script and it took the RSS feed and then it wrote the MP3 files as an album into your iPod. And the reason it's called podcasting is because you could sync your iPod on your Mac to an RSS feed that then put it there. So the idea was you would plug your iPod in at night to sync and to charge to your Mac and also in podcast, it would download at night all those things. And when you got on your commute, you'd have a couple podcasts on there. And I was like, wow. 
And then they convinced Steve Jobs to add it to iTunes. To yep. iTunes. And there's a famous clip of me talking with six or seven. Yeah, and there's a famous clip of me talking to Steve at the D conference um, and asking him a question about it. And I asked him about making money if you'd ever sell advertising on podcasts or whatever. And uh, he said, you know, it's a really good idea. You should just email me, Jason. And I said, yeah, the email I always email you at. And he said, yeah. And the whole audience laughed. But I just said it as a joke, like, you know, wise ass. <laughs> you know, because I did talk to him on email. And so I thought it'd be funny to say, you know, like the email we always talk <laughs> on. And the whole audience cracks up. It's a very funny clip. Um, but anyway, I did the podcast because I just thought it'd be fun. And to me, it was just a fun way to promote my friends. And so, you know, I had Brian Alvey on, my longtime collaborator as a first guest. David Sachs came on early. Just, you know, Jason Nazar was starting a company. Just having people on when I was in LA. And it, then Bing uh, was going to launch. And somebody from Microsoft called me and like, hey, we love this like podcast thing you're doing. We want to tell you about something secret. And I was like, what is it? He's like, we're starting a surgeon. I was like, everybody knows. He's like, yeah, it's called Bing. I'm like, well, that's a terrible name. And he's like, uh, well, anyway, we want to advertise on your podcast. And this is 11 years ago. And I was like, okay. Uh, you hadn't you, thought about, you hadn't put two and two together. There was no that, advertising like, in podcast. The, it was just yeah, like blogs. Right. It was just a thing. But of course, it was just like when you're starting Silicon Alley Reporter or Weblog. Yes. Like it's, it's the Anytime same thing. Anytime a new a medium comes out, I, I assume it's going to work. This is my big trick in life. Whenever something comes out, I just assume it is going to reach critical mass and I behave as such. So when blogs came out, I was like, Okay, I assume it's going to work. I'm going to go full bore as if it's going to. When podcasting came out, I went full bore. Whatever everything comes out, I just if I if I'm interested in it, Twitter, the same thing. I just went full bore on Twitter. When has um, that not worked? Oh God, probably more times than I can count. But I mean, it's. Uh, but the, but it doesn't matter when it doesn't work. Yeah, what I mean, matters it, I mean, I have a right? Tumblr. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of sir, uh, path.com, uh, friend feed. There was a bunch of other things. But if you take the Robert Scoble, relentless enthusiasm, like spastic, like, oh my God, this is going to change everything. Google Buzz, Google Plus. You know, like I was all in on those services too and that was all wasted time. But, you know, when it does hit, people remember the hits. Like it's just the same thing about it that you guys know about investing. And asymmetric returns, learning. yeah. Yes, asymmetric returns, correct. If you if you get in early and you have the the you know you're baking in whatever that service is and you got there early you're gonna you're gonna have a head start on everybody else so then it just worked for me and then they bought they were like how much are the ads and i was like um uh three thousand dollars and like okay uh per ad i was like yeah but you have to buy 10 and they're like okay thirty thousand dollars and you just sent me thirty thousand dollars and they're like i was like they're like what is the ad i was like i'll just talk about bing and so i literally just pull up bing and i'm like hey check out this feature check out that feature thanks bing 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 and then then we'd be the end of the ad it's pretty funny remember those um, so great yeah we just goofed off and uh, we'd have puppets on the show we just it was just this like vaudeville kind of approach to it uh, but then it started getting a little, you know, went from like, you know, 500 to 1,000 people would see it to 10,000, 20,000. You know how this stuff goes, 200,000, 300,000. All of a sudden it becomes a thing. And hey, what's the that. listenership on This Week in Startups now, just to give people Over 200,000 per episode, yeah. Yeah. So you guys are right on my tails. It's a niche podcast by design. Like I could make it get bigger by dumbing it down or going shorter or having post-production on it. But I just told everybody I'm not interested in that. And, and you know, Joe Rogan has taken the same approach, the same, you know, Howard Stern-like approach as you put the recorders on. As long as it's interesting, you go. And we have three ad slots and we sell them out every year. And it does, you know, a couple million bucks. And that's enough to pay for a seven, eight person team that works on the podcast now. That's awesome. And yeah. and how does that play into your angel investing? So to take us well, back. Well, it's very simple. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I would say on the podcast, hey, uh, you know, here's a company I invested in. I'm having them on the podcast. Or in the case of com.com, somebody had told me 
Alex was like a genius. And I was like, why? And he's like, well, I did the million dollar homepage. I was like, oh, that was genius. He's like, yeah, I do a meditation app. I looked at it. It was a web page where you went and it just played a meditation in a loop. And I was like, yeah, I'll have him on the podcast. I need a guest. You know, back then it was just like, can we get any guests? And so Alex came on and so on the episode, I said, hey, can I put 25K in? You know, for like one percent or two percent or whatever. And he's like, "Yeah, we talked about this live it. on the episode." I did a live on the episode, and you know, I was always trying to get somebody to do that, and nobody would do yeah. it. But I thought it was funny; it was entertaining for me. Anyway, long story short, he, you know, I put fifty k in for my fund, and this AngelList thing had just come out, and I made it the first deal on AngelList. And my expectation was that maybe another twenty five k would come in or fifty k because they had like, you know, I don't know, like. I don't know, 100, 200 people had signed up. So I was like, yeah. And $328,000 came in. And uh, the company was worth $4 million or $5 million at the time. We had a 6 or 7% position. And that company's worth $1.4 billion now. Uh, it's the most successful syndicate in the history of syndicates. In fact, it's probably the top three syndicates combined would be smaller than the composition. And for people that have never used AngelList, how does that work? Where you're like, hey, I'm in for 50. How is it that like- Well, the original deal was- um, Angelist would take 5% of the carry. I would get 15%. I subsequently negotiated an 18 and 2 deal, which led to a lot of animosity. Uh, eventually, Angelist and I broke up. It's, that's another sort of tale. But, you know, Naval and I are friends still, but we were just a little too big for it. And that's, you know, like back to being very clear about like, I'm not the bull you want in your China shop. Like, I know <laughs> that some people think like, wouldn't it be great to buy Jason's company and put it as part of this big venture firm? The answer is no because I'm going to do what I want and it's going to knock shit over inside your place, right? Like it's not good for you. Um, and it's not good for your partnership. If you're trying to build a partnership and you want five or six people to sit there and have like a really good conversation and dialogue about an investment, that is the that to me would be purgatory. That's your nightmare. It's yeah. literally my nightmare. Like I want to make an investment because I look at the founder's eyes and I push the chips in. I do not want to have five people sitting in my seat while we discuss if I should go all in on this poker hand. That's the opposite of what should happen in early stage investment. The second you debate it is the second you lose the outliers because the outliers make no freaking sense. So anyway, consensus equals death in the early stage. Consensus at later stage equals protecting downside risk and due diligence and all that stuff is very important. I get it. Certainly. Can we, can we digress for a minute yes, before digress. we pick back up with the story of your empire? But talk to us a little bit about your philosophy because I think it's super it's super incisive about the difference between bets and like informed by poker, shaping your bets, experiments versus investing. Yeah. So here's the thing. Imagine a poker table existed in the world where you would buy in for $10,000 and there were 10 players. So it's a hundred thousand dollars on the table, but every 100 hands you could win a million dollars or $10 million. So there was uncapped upside. Somebody just gifted 900,000 extra dollars or 9.9 .9 million extra dollars to that table. It would change the way people played. It would change the game. There would be, and that's called the World Series of Poker, by the way, for pros. Because the World Series of Poker, when they have that series of like 50, 60 games, all these amateurs come from the world, dead money, people who are easy to pick off. It's like for the pros, for Phil Hellmuth, it's literally like if you started the NBA finals and the Warriors had to play against the high school team. We'd be like, well, we're just going to win a lot of games here. It's the only way to get asymmetric upside in poker. Correct. I mean, there are ways, but yes, asymmetric for sure. So anyway, once you realize that, that frees you from you trying to understand if the idea is going to win or not. That's what trips early stage 
investor stuff, which is why I wrote my book, is because I felt I had figured something out and I wanted to share it with the world, which was this is the greatest casino in the world, in my opinion. And nobody knows about it. And the people who do know about it do not want to talk about it. And then another group of people think it's the stupidest thing in the world and a scam. And why is that? Well, most people come into angel investing who I meet who think it's stupid and they had $500,000 in their bankroll and they gave 250,000 of it to their uh, daughters, sorority sisters, boyfriend, ex-boyfriend's brother. And because they're gonna build an Instagram competitor that has links in the comments. Because <laughs> yep. Instagram doesn't support links in the comments. Like that's the reason like they're gonna exist. And um, they put the 250 in, the product never gets released. They give that 250 to dev shop in Estonia that never finished. They ask for another 250, they give the other 250, the product comes out, nobody cares, they shut it down, those people go work at uh, Boston Consulting Group or whatever. And they made one bet, so it's literally like walking up to blackjack and putting your entire sack on one hand. Like it's just not enough. Of... Or like in poker, like betting, you're going all in before the flop. Yeah, before you look at the cards. You're just like, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna sit at this table and put it all in on the first hand. <laughs> Which I know some people who do that for fun. Um, <laughs> for people that are not professional investors, it sounds ridiculous to dumb it down this far, but like even if you're only making five, six, seven angel bets and you're not really creating a you know, 12, 15, 20 company portfolio, it's, it's mathematically the same thing. You're taking Correct. way too concentrated of a bet. It really, and you need to really hit 20 or 30 or 40 in what I've seen in angel investors who succeeded. And you have to be investing in a certain pool of entrepreneurs. If you're a nobody who starts out, any deal flow that gets to you, by definition, is being picked over by all the qualified people. If you're reading scripts in Hollywood as a first-time director, and the script got to you, that means every <laughs> director has passed on it and it never got to the good director. So just understand right. that. And then, okay, so this is what I want to I want to yeah. go deeper on, yeah, because I, I think this is there's a really important insight here. How do you square the what you said a minute ago about consensus at the early stage consensus kills because you want the crazy stuff you can't predict right with this aspect of you right. need the high quality like what is the signal and the quality? Yeah, so what I teach we have a course called Angel University that goes along with Angel the book and. In that course, I explained to people that when you make your first 20 or 30 bets, make as small a bet as possible, which means using syndicates is a good idea. Forget about mine. Just sign up for everyone because it's free to read the deal memos and you'll learn. But it, if you do that, you're playing at the lowest stakes poker table while you learn. Like literally, if you could play $1 blackjack, if you wanted to learn blackjack, sit at the $1 blackjack table instead of the $100 a hand. Because you're going to lose a minimum, and it doesn't matter if you lose. It's just the education. It's like paying for an educational course. And I tell people, only invest in companies, startups that have gotten their product to market and have some customers, hopefully paying customers. But if not, customers who are using the free product that you can at least talk to. You've now eliminated, as you guys know, 90% of the failure rate. 90% of the attrition in startups just comes don't from- don't ship a product. They never ship the product. Then you get down to that 10% of that, 90% of those never get a paying customer. So if you were as your a starting angel investor to only invest in companies with some amount of revenue, even as little as two to 10,000 a month, you probably have eliminated 80, 90% of the risk. So start there while you're learning. And then as you get more sophisticated, just like in poker, if you wanna play under the gun with Phil Helming at the table and you wanna play nine, 10 suited, okay, maybe, if you've been playing for 10 years. But you don't wanna take those kind of risks and bet on a meditation app or a, a couch serving app when you're just getting started. 
there's five times you could have invested in Calm, maybe three, four, five times a Calm, three, four, five times in Robinhood. Even these outliers, Airbnb, you probably have four or five chances to invest in Airbnb as an angel investor. It's a misnomer that you're going to miss the deal. Like what Y Combinator does to angel investors and telling them, if you don't invest quickly within these 48 period, the deals close and you miss them forever. It's like just literally not true. It's literally they try to create a false sense of urgency. They train the founders to do this. And it's nonsense. Not only is that round not closing immediately, there's going to be four rounds after that you can get into. No great investor invests at demo day. Well, especially now with safes and not price rounds, like it's rolling. I mean, it's, it's not, rolling. Yeah. Super rolling. There's one thing you said that is, I think is really insightful. When you're not Phil Hellmuth and you're playing poker for the first time, like just invest in things that have shipped and have revenue. And then once you get better and better and better and you become Jason Calacanis, you can invest in Calm. Why are you comfortable at the level you're at investing in a no revenue meditation website? Why was, why was that yeah, okay? So I can take you to the background. It was very simple. Um, I had known Sam Harris. I had done positive visualizations. I had heard that term, and I used that in sports because I was a psychology major. I had done positive visualizations to get through the New York City Marathon, which I did 11 of. I didn't know it was called meditation, but I just positively visualized myself along the route. And then when I did the run, I had had that in my mind, how good I was going to feel at each part and how the Bronx and the wall was going to be difficult. Then when I saw Calm, I talked to Sam Harris about it because he was studying... Uh, you know, he's doing CAT scans of brains, um, and he was a meditator and uh, into psychedelics and all this stuff. And he put me in touch when I was doing my research on Calm with a woman who ran the Mindfulness Center at UCLA. And I found out that Phil Jackson, who I'd known when I was in LA, when he was coaching uh, the Lakers, I had become friends with him. And he had Kobe and Shaquille O'Neal meditating. And I just, it, it clicked for me. Wait a second. Phil Jackson, innovator, Sam Harris, innovator. There's something at UCLA around the corner for me in Brentwood. They're studying it. They have a program. They're teaching people this. Oh, they're studying it on PTSD soldiers. This is the future. But unlike yoga, which also started in Santa Monica, this can be delivered through your ears. Wait a second. Yoga you have to do in person, and yoga's everywhere. But meditation is delivered in your ears. If this does work, and it becomes as popular as yoga, there could be 100,000 people paying for this. It could be like a $10 million a year business. Companies worth $4 million. This could be like the future. And that's when it all clicked for me. And it was like an easy bet for me to make. And then the subscription service came out and Apple allowed subscriptions. And when I think we invested in, when we invested in Common, I think they had done 10,000 in revenue, you know, selling a month. Okay, so it was a post-revenue startup. They had post-revenue. Yeah, yeah, they did. But with, with Robinhood, they didn't. Robinhood hadn't launched yet. So that was another one where I just, you know, I saw them and it made sense to me. So, you know, you you can get signaling. I'm not saying you can't do this, but if you want to reduce the amount of pain you're going to go through and you want to have a, a less painful junior year, like your junior year <laughs> as an angel investor when you hit the J curve is so painful because you think you're an idiot. You've deployed all your money. Nothing's break out yet. And you don't have any, you can't keep investing. Oh, and- half your portfolio can't raise money and is shutting down and the other half can barely raise money and they're begging you for a bridge. Like literally the junior year, everything tells you to quit. And then all of a sudden you're four or five or six, you know, Travis calls up and he's in six cities and he's closing around with Menlo at 300 million. And you're like, wait a second, 5 million times 60 and holy, <laughs> that's a lot of money. 
You know, yeah. and you start saying, oh, whoa, this could work. And that's when you, when once you hit one of those unicorn type investments, then all of a sudden it clicks in your brain, your brain chemistry changes. You have to have the brain chemistry change from being risk averse and outlier averse to out, outlier obsessed. I am outlier obsessed. I do not care about losses. I, I literally, and that took me a long time because remember I was such a rabid competitor. The idea of being fine with losing all the time, like imagine losing 29 nights in a row at poker, but on the 30th night, you hit a 5,000X or a 200X. Right. It's because you're you're playing in this very special poker table right now where the losses don't matter, supposing that you actually are fishing in the right pond where you do find those magical ones. Correct, Amundo. I think there's one more layer, though, that I don't think we've touched on yet that I've, I've heard you speak about before, which is shaping your bets into this. And like as you're making these angel investments, keeping them very small and thinking of them as experiments that, that like I, I, to me, that seemed as like a really good mental trick to be like, it's not a loss. It's a yeah. failed experiment. Correct. And this is why I started the Launch Accelerator three years ago. We have 100 companies I've gone through. And, we, and I basically was like, what was Paul Graham's original idea? Oh, six or seven companies? Great. I'll just copy that. Seven companies. And Paul was the draw, right? And now it's the legacy's the draw. Paul Graham's not the draw. It's the legacy. So I said, okay, well, if Paul was the draw, I know I'm a draw. So let's see if it works. And I just said 7% of, uh, 6% of preferred for 100K, which is a $1.7 million implied valuation. So f*** it. Uh, we'll go with that. We'll just start accepting seven people at a time and deploying 700K at a time. But then I added something, which was, you know, YC, imagine if YC and Angelus got married or merged. What would that look like? Well, that's what I had. And I had left Angelist and I had started the syndicate.com. And it took me a while to get that domain name, but I got it. Coveted that one. I'm a domain name coveter. I'm a brander. Anyway, the point is, I, I started saying to people, I'll put in... Uh, 50K for uh, the original deal was like 50K for 5%. I'll put in 25K for 5%. Then I'll put 25K at whatever your recent round is, and then I'll syndicate it. And uh, then it was too hard to just syndicate all of them because not all of them wanted to do the syndicate. So then I just said, okay, we'll put in 100K. It's the same deal as Y Combinator at the time. So then we're betting on these for a 1.7, you know, rounded up to $2 million valuation. And then one of the companies raised around, and I was like, I always told myself, well, We'll put more money in, in the seed round, and we'll try to get to 10% ownership. And then, like, two of the best companies raised rounds, and the, and the founder was like, well, we have no room for you. I'm like, yeah. what? <laughs> I was like, I, I introduced you. So I called up those people who were doing the rounds, and I read them the riot act. I said, I introduced <laughs> this company. How dare you try to muscle me? I said, you're swinging an elbow at me? I said, I'm the point guard. I passed you the ball. And now you're... You're, you're, you're not passing the ball back when you're triple team? Like, pass the ball, move the rock. And I got both of those people to give me allocations. And then I was like, well, this is not how power is supposed to work. <laughs> um, like, if I'm the point guard, I have the power. I have the power yeah. to freeze you. So then I said, okay, now the freezing will begin. So I wrote into our documents that we have the right to do half the next round. It's a hefty um, pro rata, my friend. Not if you're Jason Calacanis. <laughs> And not if you're the founders. It's a feature, not a bug. Yeah. It's a feature for the founders who we work with because they can start their fundraising with me as an anchor. And 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 they do. 
and do you so so do you pick winners do you say hey you three you guys are getting the half the round from me yeah we've evolved it over time so in order to make it more fair to everybody what i say to them is if you're tripling revenue if you're doubling revenue six months um we're likely to just preemptively make you an offer if your performance is in the top like five percent and we've done that and then we'll let other people invest in it, but we'll actually price it around and put it in 500K or 250K and get them started. I said, for everybody else, if you're not like just crazy outlier, uh, we're tripling revenue, you know, every six months or something during the program, just go ahead and but we'll still leave room for other people. When you get your term sheet, give it to us. We'll have five business days or something to make a decision and we'll let you know what our what allocation we want to take. But we'll usually do it in a day or two, which is actually what Y Combinator announced they're doing now. Yeah, that they're doing now, yep. Yeah, so they switched to my position. and Because I think they were experiencing the same thing, which was they were getting boxed out of their winners. And so now we just say, give us the term sheet. And if it's a reasonable term sheet, it's not like something outrageous um, or non-traditional. Like we had one of our successful companies do a deal for common shares at a ridiculous price with some non-traditional private equity firm. And we passed. We said, well, just stick with our 6%. But other times we'll put in 500K. And so for a company like Fitbot, a major breakout for us, they came to us with just $2,000 a month in revenue, I think, or maybe 1,000. And uh, they've been public about you know hitting um, eight figures in revenue. They were public about that at the launch festival. They gave a keynote. We offer, and I offered them live on stage, uh, 2 million out of 50 million posts. But anyway, we wound up putting more money in a couple of times. You know, we built our position up to, you know, over 10%. So that's what I'm trying to do now is just get to 10, 15, 20%. And eventually, you know, with our fund, the syndicate, you know, and the accelerator, we can make three or four bets in the company and get to know the founder. And if we can do this three or four bet thing, we'll be the first people to combine Y Combinator, AngelList, slash Seed Invest, slash Republic, whatever crowdfunding you know syndicate you like, with a seed fund, like Homebrew or Pear or whatever. So that's what I'm constructing right now. We don't have a proper Series A because we don't need to because the fund plus syndicate kind of hits the one, two million dollar number. But, you know, the next fund perhaps will be able to do a full A, like a five million dollar A. But I don't need to do that. I kind of like being in the early stage. It gets less interesting for me to, to do go and do the, you know, big checks. And, and there's so so many specialized people at that. I'd rather hand it off to Sachs or Chamath or Bill Gurley or, you know, Ruloff or somebody like that. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. 
and these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where quote-unquote energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. Well, Jason, this has been like so fun. We got to do this more often because it's, it's incredibly fun to riff with you. I think this is a good place to call it for the, the main show here. Um, and for the LP show, I think what we're going to do is we're going to dive into your investing, the, the way that you're sort of, frankly, deconstructing the, the jobs of a VC firm, sourcing, evaluating, you know, winning the deal, helping, and then future access to capital. It's really interesting what you're doing. And I also want to discuss the way that all these things tie together and how you sort of view the flywheel or the funnel or how you, how you sort of visualize it. And then I know you've got some... Uh, um, good insider stories. Good insider stories for sure. The couple you brought up, and also yeah. like, frankly, the way you see the world. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure there's a hot take in there. I got a hot take post Corona. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> all right, listeners, th- thanks so much for going on the journey with us here. Um, LPs Spend the hundred. Spend the hundred bucks. <laughs> Become an LP member like me. All right, uh, listeners, thanks. LPs, we'll see you on the other side.